I'm just going to give a little spoiler here before we get into it. I hope you don't mind. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I'll read out from the summary of your review because it kind of sets the picture for what we want to talk about. Obviously, we're talking about cannabis and sleep today. So in the conclusion of the review... I'll just quote verbatim here. At present, there is limited evidence to support the clinical use of cannabinoid therapies for the treatment of any sleep disorder, given the dearth of published research and the moderate to high risk of bias identified within the majority of clinical and preclinical studies completed to date. Nonetheless, there are promising signs in a number of therapeutic applications that warrant additional study. And there is clear need for intensification of high quality research into the safety and efficacy of cannabinoid therapies for treating sleep disorders. So in a nutshell, you've kind of gone through all of the literature. You say there's some limitations because um, you didn't include uh, non-English language studies. But what you found is the existing clinical evidence doesn't really support a case for using cannabis to treat sleep disorders yet. Is that a fair assessment of the review? Yes. And I think it's really not reflective of what is being shown in the community. So as I'm sure you know, there are many strongly held beliefs about cannabis and sleep. And based on our previous studies, we've done nationwide surveys here in Australia showing that sleep disorders were the second most common reason that Australians are using illicit cannabis uh, medicinally, with insomnia being the most common. And so we have lots of people saying that cannabis helps them sleep. However, there is little to no evidence uh, to confirm that these anecdotal reports are indeed true. And so while there's limited evidence for its use, it's limited in terms of it entering into mainstream medicine at this stage. Um, but that's not to say that there are people around the world that are accessing legal medicinal cannabis for various sleep disorders, and that's already happening. So there's certainly a, sort of a cart before the horse situation in many countries where people are already trying this because conventional medications have not worked. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I want to do today is a huge, huge, huge topic, and we want to specifically tailor this towards sleep. And the idea of medical cannabis and its um, applications for sleep. But I also want to give a bit of context to the subject of, of cannabis in general um, and kind of see where we've been, where we are now, and possibly some pathways for the future. Um, but just before we get into that, Anastasia, um, mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about the the Lambert Initiative, uh, where you're based mm -hmm. at the moment? And it's a, it's a philanthropic initiative. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not too aware of too many institutions that are doing the type of work that you guys are doing there down in Sydney. So can you give us a little um, summary of the type of work that you're doing there and the, the type of organization and possibly how the way you've got things set up down in Sydney could inform research and further discoveries in this in this area. Mm, that's right. So yeah, um, the Lambert Initiative for Cannabinoid Therapeutics, this was created by Barry and Joy Lambert's very generous donation that was made towards the University of Sydney. Um, and this donation was uh, just under $34 million. And the donation was specifically for research into the therapeutic use of medicinal cannabis. And for them, this donation was personal. They have a granddaughter, her name is Caitlin Lambert, who has a very serious genetic uh, form of epilepsy known as Dravet syndrome. And, you know, this type of syndrome um, affects a child quite heavily. They have recurrent seizures that don't respond to any medication. Um, it does affect their development, both cognitively, socially, in all forms, in terms of the way that a child reaches their milestones. And um, out of desperation, her father, Michael Lambert sought CBD oil. Um, this is based on research that he had read through word of mouth of other families using it in the States for their children. And he found that her seizures decreased significantly after incorporating 
a CBD oil into her treatment regimen. And through this experience, it inspired the family to donate money towards research because um, into medicinal cannabis because very little work had been done. And so through this, the Lambert Initiative was created and really it's about advancing cannabinoid-based treatments into mainstream medicine. And the work that we do at the Lambert Initiative extends from cellular and preclinical pharmacology through to medicinal chemistry and then all the way to human clinical trials where we're actually testing cannabis-based therapies in humans across a whole range of different areas and clinical conditions. So anxiety that's treatment-resistant, Tourette's syndrome, We've got insomnia, uh, as well as a series of driving studies to probe the effects of cannabis on driving, uh, because obviously, you know, as medicinal cannabis gets into mainstream medicine, the question around driving becomes quite a pertinent issue, which I'm sure we can touch on uh, later in this interview. Yep, and the work is very much focused, um, not solely, but there is a definite focus towards exploring new medicines basically and appropriate medicines mm. and coming up with actual treatments that are going to be able to be rolled out in a way that we know that this medicine has been properly tested it's been through trials and i guess what i'm getting at is with maybe a, a different type of organization maybe a government funded organization there's going to be certain barriers to do with prohibition and legalization of cannabis Certainly, and I think it really just it's country to country. So, uh, for example, in Australia, there are restrictions on accessing uh, cannabis-based products to test in clinical trials. However, it's not impossible, and it certainly requires uh, permits and qualifications to um, allow the researchers to get access to a scheduled drug. So, at the end of the day, it is a scheduled drug, and it has to be treated um, like any other scheduled drug. So. In Australia, it does make, we have been able to access such products to test their effects both in humans and also within the lab. Um, in other countries, it does vary, and certainly in the US, uh, access to different types of cannabis based products is quite limited. So it really is country specific. Okay, so. I want to start with a bit of a, a history lesson. It's fascinating to explore this topic. Everyone knows what cannabis is. Everyone has their own sort of perception of what it is, which is generally framed as, you know, it's an illegal drug, cannabis, weed, pot, whatever people like to call it. Um, but when you start to dig in, cannabis has sort of been embedded in human civilization pretty much since um, recorded history, you know. Up to 10,000 years ago, back in Taiwan and, and China, people cultivating hemp, ancient civilizations, India and China are mentioned, ancient Egypt, all across Europe and ancient Greece and North America. It's kind of always been with us, um, not just using cannabis for you know, it's uh, medicinal or pharmaceutical properties, but also for the properties of hemp as a, as a fiber. Um, I, I dug out a couple of quotes here, which uh, I found quite interesting. So um, there's one from uh, history.com and it says, hemp has been used to make a broad variety of products from rope to cloth to paper. And it was an important product in the new world as the American colonies were being established. It was so important, in fact, that in 1619, Virginia passed the law requiring hemp to be grown on every farm in the colony. And at the time, the crop was also considered a proper form of currency in Virginia. Mm. So uh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's quite interesting. Yeah. And also, um, cannabis cultivation played a central role in the establishment of the United States. And George Washington grew hemp at Mount Vernon as one of his three primary crops. You know, I've certainly found that surprising, um, considering how we regard cannabis weed these days. But at, at one point in history, it was it was actually a form of currency. And then, you know, for various reasons, laws kicked in, prohibition came in. We're not going to get into that. That's another huge topic. Um, that resulted in 
a lot of stigmatization. Those perceptions still exist now where people mainly think about cannabis as something that's illegal, something that's prohibited, rather than the whole of our history. And, um, and now in the 21st century, we're sort of turning the page, another page in the history. And, you know, especially in the US where there's been a lot of laws to decriminalize and to legalize cannabis, um, it's becoming a huge, huge industry. And, you know, it's fair to say that there's a big consumer demand for cannabis, not just for recreation or lifestyle purposes, but also people are starting to realize the medicinal benefits as well. So I've just done a 10,000 year trip through history there. So I, I, I wondered <laughs> I if you've got it. anything to say about all or any of that. No, I mean, that's exactly right. So, you know, and hemp has so many different uses, as you mentioned, so textiles, food, building materials such as rope. Um, I read recently that they were hypothesizing that hemp rope was actually used to transport the dying stone statues to Easter Island. You know, not only just building materials, but also body care products such as soap. It's interesting with hemp because it's part of the same species as cannabis, but it just, the defining factor between the two of them is the amount of THC in the plant. And it does also, it's quite an interesting point when you talk about the medicinal aspects of both hemp and cannabis. So cannabis and hemp have a slight genetic difference, making one psychoactive and the other not. So hemp plants fail to produce THC. It's usually about 0.3% or less THC content. And that's because they lack a gene that can, that codes for an enzyme to produce THC. So smoking hemp would be neither fun or therapeutic, but mm -hmm. it does have um, large amounts of CBD similar to cannabis. So the both of them can produce large amounts of CBD, what's known as cannabidiol. And cannabidiol or CBD um, is the non-intoxicating component of cannabis, um, which is thought to have anti-anxiety properties, um, anti-seizure properties, and a whole array of other therapeutic benefits. And so uh, both hemp and cannabis have different uses, and I'm sure you've heard of hemp-based CBD oils that are being marketed that they have very low THC-free content, which is quite useful if people are wanting to self-medicate with CBD-only products. It's just interesting how the two have just sort of completely disappeared over the last 80 or so years because of these anti-cannabis laws, the propaganda and the fear that was instilled into the minds of people and the reefer madness. You know, now we're after such a long hiatus, it's now being pursued afresh by modern researchers and clinicians based on all the anecdotal reports of people and, you know, people using it over all these years. They're incidentally finding all these benefits for various ailments. So it's an interesting time right now to be in this space. Absolutely, yeah. I came across this term, I think it was one of your uh, professors from the Lambert Initiative, and he used this term, um, the evidence gap which I, I really liked mm. because he, he basically laid out all of this, you know, millennia of historical accounts, tons and tons of anecdotal accounts, some limited scientific evidence and limited clinical trials, but basically not enough to meet the standards of calling cannabis a, a medicine as yet. So I like this term, the evidence gap, because we kind of know instinctively that something mm. is going on and there's got to be a reason why it's been such a, a widely used substance for so long, but we're not quite there yet. And I, I guess that's the exciting bit. Um, mm. So we're not going to go into any of the, uh, you know, the regulatory stuff or, you know, talk too much about the commercial stuff, but I wondered if you can just um, give us an overview. We'll move on to sleep a little bit later, mm -hmm. but just a broad overview of the very, very wide range of of conditions that cannabis has been used um, historically, you know, anecdotally, and also some of the treatments and the protocols that exist now, which are very limited, but there are some out there. And, you know, maybe, um, well, I read on the, the Lambert Initiative, your organization is focusing on, um, I'm just reading off the page here, pediatric <laughs> epilepsy, cancer, chronic pain, obesity, neurological, sleep disorders, mental health disorders, so there's tons and tons of stuff. Mm. So, 
and obviously we don't have time to go into all of this. They're all separate subjects on their own. But I, I just wondered if you could give our listeners just an idea of the, you know, the huge, huge potential there is if we can do the research and, and dig into it where we are now. And, um, you know, we're, we're enthusing here as well, but also maybe discuss, um, you know, the, the risks and, and side effects. So I'll, I'll, I'll hand over to you now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's, look, that's, it's important to understand, I think, first in our bodies, what cannabis components interact with. So I'm going to introduce what's called the endocannabinoid system. Um, so we all know, say, the olfactory system, the cardiovascular system, but few know about what's called the endocannabinoid system. And what it is, it's a complex cell signaling system that consists of cannabinoid receptors. So for example, CB1 and CB2. CB down, CB1, excuse me, is predominantly in the brain, whereas CB2 is both in the brain and around peripheral organs and in the immune system. It also consists of endogenous ligands or neurotransmitters that bind to these receptors and also the enzymes or molecules that are important for their synthesis and the release of these neurotransmitters. Now, the system as a whole is responsible for regulating multiple different bodily processes from appetite and metabolism to our immune response, to mood, to pain. And what this system does, it acts as a homeostatic regulator. So it's keeping the communication between cells in the body in check. And this may explain why cannabis or cannabinoids seem to have such a broad, wide effect, not only from things such as, as you mentioned, the list from pain to various neurological disorders such as epilepsy, all the way to sleep. Um, and so this is where researchers like myself get very excited um, and we're predominantly looking at two main cannabinoids, uh, THC, which is the intoxicating component, and CBD, which I mentioned earlier, the non-intoxicating component, and mainly because these are the most abundant in the plant and also the most studied, but there are over a 100 different cannabinoids and probably more that haven't been identified that are present in the plant, along with flavonoids, terpenoids, so the terpenoids are what makes cannabis gives it that smell and a whole bunch of things that are in the plant that may have therapeutic value as well. And so one thing that I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard of is what's called the entourage effect. It suggests that the whole plant and all of its components work better together than alone. Uh, Dr. Ethan Russo, he's a neurologist and psychopharmacologist, refers to it as akin to a symphony in which many musicians support and harmonize the melody provided by the soloists. Um, mm -hmm. So the soloists are the THC and the CBD, and the melody is everything else in the plant. It's a phenomena that hasn't really been well studied, but it's something that a lot of people in the community believe is important for the therapeutic effects or to produce superior therapeutic effects. And so what researchers do, obviously, to find out a mechanism is we research everything both in isolation and whole parts. This is kind of where we are at at the moment in cannabis research. So mainly we have the most evidence with THC and CBD, but there are research, there's other research that's now looking at the minor cannabinoids and combinations of different cannabinoids to see what effects they have, whether it improves or reduces the effect in the disorder or syndrome that they're looking at. Initially, the, the main form of research that came out was mainly in pediatric epilepsy. So this is high-dose CBD. It's a 98% pure product that contains CBD only, 2% other cannabinoids, and so that includes THC, but also other parts of the plants so of the flavonoids and terpenoids that I mentioned. And this was studied in treatment-resistant epilepsy in children, so things such as Dravet syndrome, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, and so Dravet's what little Caitlin Lambert has. And it was found to be quite effective in reducing seizures. And this is as an adjunctive uh, medication. So it's added on top of the child's uh, other anticonvulsant medications. And in these children who have very severe epilepsies, they're often having hundreds of seizures a day. 
they're not responding to medication and often they're cognitively regressing so they're actually losing the milestones that they've gained and so for families it's quite awful to see that happen to their child so this product that I mentioned, this high high CBD product, was the first to really to be studied um, properly using randomized controlled trials. So these are the high quality study designs that can actually definitively show whether it's more effective than conventional medications or a placebo. Um, but really, all that research um, was, I guess, pushed and prompted by the community and by families who were desperate and were looking for an alternative to help treat their child's epilepsy. So it's, it was people experimenting with illicit oils um, and trying anything that they can do to help their kids. So epilepsy was really one of the foundational um, areas where cannabis sort of had its name or medicinal cannabis um, had planted its name to. And um, since then, there have been other formulations that have come out. So, for example, Sativex is an oral mucosal spray that contain equal, uh, contains equal parts of both THC and CBD. Um, and that has been studied extensively across a number of chronic pain syndromes and has shown to be really useful in reducing spasticity in patients with multiple sclerosis. And so... That's a product that's now registered across various countries, including Australia. Um, so doctors can actually prescribe Sativex for patients with MS um, who are not responding to normal spasticity medications. And other health conditions where cannabis has been explored in has really been um, inspired by people in the community who report using cannabis. For example, people with Parkinson's disease said that they would smoke cannabis and then suddenly their tremor's gone. Um, and there's videos on YouTube before and afters and it's quite compelling. And that's prompted researchers to do something about that, to look into that and see what is actually going on. Is it a placebo response? Is it actually affecting parts of the brain that cause tremor and is actually therapeutic. So it's really been, in a way, a back translation in some cases where mm. people are already using cannabis in the community and saying it's working. And so we're taking that back to the lab or back to the clinical setting to see, doing those proper studies to see what's actually going on. Is it working? There was a case uh, a couple of years back, I think, in the UK where a woman was treating a son for a form of epilepsy and was traveling back from the States and had all of the, the cannabis which she'd bought in the States confiscated. Mm. And then the government here in the UK did a U-turn and said, actually, you can, you can keep it, you know, because obviously, you know, there was such a strong case that this was making a difference to her son. So we're kind of in a really funny place at the moment where the, you know, the anecdotal evidence is showing very clear signs but there just isn't the evidence to back it up yet. And, you know, it's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this subject because when we don't have clear health guidelines, people turn to Dr. Google mm. or Dr. YouTube and end up going down really weird paths of exploration. <laughs> they shouldn't go down. And, right. um, and there's still a lot of, um, you know, there's so much work to be done just regards to education. I mean, um, let's rewind a little bit. I mean, I like to take the stance that people are coming from a complete point of not knowing about this subject. So um, THC and CBD, probably most people have heard of those terms, but THC is the component, the psychoactive component, you know, th which will give you the mm -hmm. high. CBD, there's no high, but both have reported and observed medicinal effects, which are very different. And... I just wondered if you can kind of make some kind of very broad distinctions. You know, we talk about m medical cannabis broadly, but, you know, we can break it down to a dichotomy of THC and CBD. But then it goes down into this. Uh, I love your analogy of the symphony as well. We've got another hundred 
cannabinoids there and then we've got hundreds more compounds in there but if you can maybe just explain a little bit the the difference between thc and cbd a, a bit more and where those apple <clears throat> excuse me, where those applications are. Because I think this is where a lot of the reservations come from, where people who maybe mm. don't know too much and somebody suggests, well, I saw that, you know, medical cannabis worked for your condition and they go, oh, no, I don't want to be whacked out. I don't mm. want to get high or anything. Um, so maybe we can sort of bust some of those myths and just explain how these two cannabinoids, the ones that we know most about, THC and CBD, are being used and we're seeing the most results coming back at the moment. Mm, that's right. And I think education is very important both for patients and clinicians uh, because THC and CBD are, are very different compounds. Um, so THC, as you mentioned, is the intoxicating compound. It's the one that's most associated with the high and also sedating effects and pain relieving effects, as well as antiemetic effects. So here in Australia, there's a large trial currently ongoing um, in cancer patients who have been experiencing quite severe nausea and vomiting during the chemotherapy treatment and often not responding to the normal antiemetic medication. And so they found that THC was actually quite useful. Um, and I think the study is just about to wrap up and publish its findings, but it showed a promising result that it actually reduced their nausea and vomiting, but also increase their appetite. So it's quite a positive effect there. So, you know, the sedating and the pain relieving effects as well are quite useful for sleep. So there are a number of studies that were done with what I mentioned, Sativex, the one-to-one or -one mucosal spray. And it was done in a number of conditions that chronic non-cancer pain conditions and they found that um, secondarily sleep improved quite well and, and you know it sort of speaks to you know the chicken or the egg is it because it improved sleep or because it improved pain which then secondarily improved their sleep and so that is sort of where I think THC's therapeutic benefits lie, and there's probably way more that we haven't yet discovered. And, uh, for example, in the systematic review that we just published, THC in the form of dronabinol was a, uh, administered to patients with obstructive sleep apnea. Um, so there's quite a lot of uses there with THC, but the concern there for a lot of people is, as you said, they're going to be whacked out, they're going to be high, there might be some stigma involved if they're, you know, other people find out they're on a cannabis product. Uh, and it really just depends on the dose that is being administered. And in many cases, um, the doses are low, but it really just depends on the condition that they're treating. Um, in some cases, obviously with pain, the dose may have to go up before they feel an effect or feel relief. But in all cases, particularly in Australia, patients who are using THC-based medications are not able to drive. And that's mainly because of the roadside drug testing, picking up on THC in the saliva, um, whether or not they're impaired, even if they only took the medication 24 hours prior and they're no longer experiencing any of the effects of the medication, it's possible that they'll still test positive um, at the roadside. So there are a lot of concerns there about the use of THC as a medication and what that would look like in future mainstream medicine. Sorry to interrupt. I, I just wanted to say it just underlines the importance of getting this research done because, you know, people are self-medicating and it's obviously uh, an illegal drug in most countries, um, I would say. They're going to the guy on the, the street corner, they're going to the dealer and you have no idea what you're getting. But um, people need to know what they're taking, basically. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, Lots of people are forced to go out and seek illicit cannabis products um, because it's not easy to access it legally in some countries and other, for example, in the US, um, 33 states have legalized the medicinal use of cannabis. And, you know, there are access programs for them. Another example in Australia, um, there is a patient access portal, but it's quite restrictive. It's quite a bureaucratic process and it is quite expensive because 
the patient has to fork out the uh, the cost of the product. It's unregistered product that's not subsidized by the government. Um, so people are often paying, say, on average $350 a month, but often that's even higher than that, especially for young children that have to take quite high doses of CBD for epilepsy. Um, so that can go up into the hundreds, if not thousands. So it's it's quite a sticking point, I think, globally. And I think until the costs of uh, medicinal cannabis and patient access is become more cheaper and more easier to use, there will be a continued reliance on grey market or black market cannabis products. I interrupted you there. Um, so CBD, now... I get um, emails, you know, from the website, people getting in contact, you know, startups, people <laughs> starting companies, putting CBD into everything, putting mm. it into soaps, everything, you know, CBD infused this, CBD infused that, you know, it's become so widespread now. And I tend to keep a, you know, an arm's distance from pretty much all of these people because, you know, I'm thinking, um, well, fantastic CBD, you know, it's obviously got a lot of potential. But will a CBD-infused, I don't know, toothpaste, <laughs> I think I just made that one up. But you know, you know what I'm saying? It, it's, right. it's becoming you know, a real buzzword at the moment. Everyone's talking about it. Mm. But with regards to the evidence for CBD as, as a medicine, can you just give us um, you know, an outline on CBD as opposed to THC? And, you know, n not these, um, whatever it is, gummies or, uh, you know, cosmetic products. That's right. Yeah, marketing can be quite problematic. As you said, CBD oil seems to have become sort of this panacea for all ailments. And, you know, the CBD gummies and other things that are being marketed, they're often untested and of unknown quality. And I think it's quite a, you know, it's a it's a difficult thing because it does prey on vulnerable individuals who have chronic illness, who are, who are desperately seeking to access CBD because of everything that's been said about CBD and curing and helping with all these different symptoms and conditions. And you know, I, I just wanted to quickly touch on before I go into CBD's therapeutic effects is with these products that are being marketed. There have been several studies showing large variability in the label accuracy of these products, especially in the US. Yeah. And um, our colleagues in the US did buy some of these products and test them in the lab. And they found that some contain significantly less cannabinoid content than labeled, um, whereas others contain significantly higher THC than you'd expect. You know, obviously, these products will not produce the desired medical benefit. And it's this unregulated market, which I think is quite scary um, because it allows access, but then it doesn't give people what they actually need to help their condition um, or do it in a safe way where it can be monitored by a clinician and monitored for the side effects as well. In terms of CBD, in cases where you know people are accessing regulated product, um, it has been shown to be useful as an anti-anxiety medication. Now, this is preliminary evidence, but there have been several studies done in healthy volunteers um, where they have simulated anxiety and CBD has shown to reduce the response to those stressful situations. But recently, there has been an open-label study conducted in Australia, uh, in Melbourne. It was uh, youth and then sort of adolescent and then teenagers who have treatment-resistant anxiety. So they would have tried numerous conventional medications and have not responded. So they have uh, been given CBD and, um, again, uh, still wrapping up those findings, but preliminary findings do show that uh, it has helped uh, reduce anxiety um, and secondarily sleep as well, which is interesting, just kind of going back to how fiercely comorbid sleep is in so many different chronic illnesses and disorders. And CBD also really has shown to be quite helpful, as I mentioned, in reducing seizures. And so it's been explored in epilepsy syndromes, not only in children but also in adults. So they're looking to see um, what effects it can have across a number of different epilepsy syndromes. And it's also then based on this work in the epilepsy field, they had noticed that there have been changes behaviorally in these children after taking CBD. 
And in epilepsy, um, it's not uncommon that a child can display autistic-like symptoms. Um, autism and epilepsy can co-occur, and it's just it's a common comorbidity. And they showed that in these children, um, some of them would show improvements uh, behaviorally. So um, there might be uh, improved eye gaze or just their behaviors. Um, they're less irritable, less tantrums, etc. And so now they're exploring it in autism syndrome. Uh, and so it's quite interesting how one study can produce all these interesting findings that then mm. lead on to new studies to look yep. at the effects in another condition. We've been evangelizing. Uh, um, we haven't got into sleep yet, really. Um, <laughs> but I just want you to mention the risk. I think people are mm. pretty much um, aware of you know the main risks or the main perceived risks of cannabis. But can you just outline the guidelines that um, clinicians are kind of broadly giving out to people who, you know, who do go down this route of medical cannabis? And I guess the, the obvious one is, you know, you're taking a drug which potentially makes you high. But um, I wonder if you could just explain some mm. of the other um, side effects as well and, and where we are in our sort of understandings now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think in, in cases where a patient does get access to medicinal cannabis, careful monitoring is quite important. And so a lot of clinicians um, use a sort of um, start low, go slow um, type of method. So starting with a low dose and then working their way up until they see a therapeutic relief of their um, symptoms or side effects. So that's when they stop. Um, THC displays minimal toxicity and lethality. So no one has um, died from consuming too much cannabis, which is good because that's in contrast to uh, typical medications often used for sleep, such as benzodiazepines, which when mixed with alcohol can um, can be quite problematic. Um, and But moderate doses of THC in naive or occasional uses of cannabis can obviously produce quite significant intoxication. This can impair cognitive performance, can also affect memory. So it's particularly if they take it quite a high dose, if they say they smoke cannabis the night before to go to sleep the next day, they might find that themselves quite groggy, a bit tired, maybe a bit forgetful. Um, and this can also impair driving performance, either smoking it and then driving, obviously that uh, has been shown to impair driving, but also the next day, if you're feeling quite groggy and tired, perhaps it can affect that too. And that's, I guess, no different to other medications that people might be taking that can cause next day drowsiness. Um, CBD, on the other hand, has been shown to be quite safe and well tolerated in humans, even at very high doses. And there hasn't been any evidence of a withdrawal symptom uh, syndrome. So if they abruptly stop taking it, there doesn't seem to be any sort of rebound symptoms. Um, and this has been done in healthy volunteers. But one thing to note is drug-drug interactions with cannabinoids. So both THC and CBD are metabolized by this superfamily of enzymes known as SIPs. And these SIP enzymes, they break down certain drugs. So if a person is taking numerous other medications that are broken down by these enzymes, adding a cannabis-based drug on top can either delay, decrease, or increase the action of either or both drugs taken together um, and potentially cause adverse side effects. And this has been shown in the epilepsy studies where very high dose CBD has been administered to kids with epilepsy who are also taking one to four other anticonvulsant medications. And they did find a particular drug-drug interaction with a anticonvulsant called clobazam. Um, and so that's very well studied. So it kind of boosts the amount of that other drug circulating in the blood, which can can be therapeutic, but also can then lead to side effects. So it's very important that clinicians do monitor that side of things, doing liver function tests and also just checking what other medications that they're on. And, you know, in terms of THC, I think it's important that the clinician monitors dose and that, that they don't escalate in the dose to the point where they're now tolerant. And then, of course, you know, there is a possibility that they can, you know, have a withdrawal effect after they've come off the THC. Um, but generally speaking, that's usually 
just, you know, irritability, sleeplessness, things like that, which usually go away with that within a couple of weeks. So it's really just about careful monitoring and screening out for several things that cannabis can impact on. So cardiovascular issues, and I'm speaking in the context of clinical trials where we are overly cautious and making sure that we're not putting anyone at harm's way. And this is really just because we don't know the full effects of cannabis on various things such as the cardiovascular system. And if we know that THC can increase blood pressure and heart rate, which it can, we then are very careful not to recruit participants who may have cardiovascular issues. So it's really just because there's so much still that's unknown. Um, it's yeah. important that monitoring is put in place when a patient gets access. Yeah. Um, I promise we're going to talk about sleep <laughs> next. <laughs> um, just, just briefly, and I've seen mixed reports on this, but uh, a lot of people talk about dangers or possible, you know, propensity towards some quite scary mental health conditions, schizophrenia, if you smoke too much. Um, what's your understanding of the research? I think some of this has been anecdotal and I've seen other people saying, you know, it is a real risk factor. What are your mm. thoughts on, on that? Um, there is a link between early and heavy use of cannabis. And this is often in the form of smoked illicit cannabis where the levels of THC uncontrolled um, and an increased risk of psychosis. And this is particularly in people with an underlying vulnerability or predisposition. Um, there were, we did a number of st- both, I think, internationally and um, locally, there were studies that were done where uh, cannabis samples were seized and tested in a lab to check their THC content over time. And it's shown that cannabis is now being bred or has been bred to increase the amount of THC in it to get people higher and obviously their value in the black market goes up. Um, And so there's certainly uh, a case for that where, you know, heavy use of high THC cannabis that's smoked, so, you know, the pharmacokinetics of smoking cannabis, the THC goes into your bloodstream much quicker, can potentially interact yeah, as particularly in people who are predisposed to increase the risk of psychosis. And that's something that needs to be, um, you know, definitely uh, thought about, especially if, uh, younger people under the age of 18 are being prescribed cannabis, um, that yeah. are THC-based cannabis products. The THC content, you know, it, it's increased, isn't it? If you go back to the, um, the 1960s, the kind of weed they were smoking then was pretty much uh, a shadow in comparison to how strong you know the stuff you can buy on on the streets these days so it's it's really important mm. people know you know what, what they're putting in their pipe let's say that's that's right yeah and it's i think um it rose from say four percent thc content in 1995 and this was in the u.s to about 12 percent in 2014 and i think the estimates are now it's hitting around 22 percent THC with little to no CBD. And I think you're right. Back then, it would have been um, both a combination of THC and CBD um, in the plant, whereas now it's predominantly THC. And um, there is this interesting phenomenon that um, uh, together, so CBD kind of um, tapers the effect of THC. And it's just, it's due to an interaction at the receptor. Uh, which I won't try and explain, but it's something about the two working together to sort of, I guess, reduce the side effects of THC, mainly that, you know, the intoxication, the memory, uh, possible uh, cognitive kind of impairment when you when you are intoxicated. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's just so much about the breeding um, of cannabis over time. You've got nature's sort of good cop, bad cop kind of thing going on in when the plant is left to its own, uh, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. left to its own devices. Um, okay, sleep. Now, um, your PhD, you're actually looking into chronic insomnia. Um, mm. Now, lots of questions out there, lots of things I don't know. I'm, I'm quite interested to know exactly what's going on because, again, tons and tons of people will say, a joint or whatever, an edible will just really, really help them 
get to sleep. And you explained very well before, chicken and egg kind of thing, you know, maybe they've got some pain, maybe the pain's gone away and, and they're sleeping better. Uh, maybe there's some other interaction going on there. You know, I want to discuss briefly some other sleep disorders, but I guess insomnia is, is the big sort of elephant in the room. So what exactly is going on? You know, is it helping people fall asleep? Is it helping people stay asleep? You know, how does it affect um, sleep architecture, uh, sleep stages? I know, obviously, there is tons and tons of unknowns out there. But in your research and um, you digging into chronic insomnia, what do we know about when somebody uses a cannabis medication for sleep? And then obviously, we've got this layer of CBD and <laughs> And THC on top of that as well. So I know it's a big question, but um, I'll, I'll just hand it over there. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, there, like you said, there's actually no clinical studies that have been done in a population where they have clinician diagnosed chronic insomnia. Um, and a lot of what we know is based on data collected from recreational cannabis users. Um, so the systematic review that we did uh, basically showed there's little to no um, scientific evidence explaining how cannabis affects sleep onset, sleep maintenance, sleep architecture and all the different stages. Um, so a lot of what we know is based on studies that are quite old. Most were done in the 1970s and, you know, as I said, based on very high and variable, mostly uncertain doses of THC that they were smoking. Um, and so, you know, based on that, what we do know is that at low doses, THC seems to reduce the time it takes to fall asleep and increases the total time asleep. Um, and it also, again, in low doses, increases the amount of time in slow-wave sleep. Um, so this is uh, deep sleep or stage three and four of non-REM sleep uh, that's important for memory consolidation and allowing the brain to recover from its daily activities. Again, I preface this is all very old studies. Um, yeah. Now, at high doses, THC starts to do the opposite. It can make it harder for you to fall asleep, and there's actually less of that restorative deep sleep, that um, stage three sleep, stage three and four. Um, and it's possible that the intoxicating effects can sometimes have a stimulatory effect, making it harder for someone to fall asleep. Um, but it seems to, at very high doses, not in the at least the long term, have a very beneficial effect on sleep. And the other thing that these older studies have shown is that it seems to, THC seems to reduce REM sleep. And this is the stage of sleep where we dream. Um, and this has been important for patients with post-traumatic stress disorder who suffer with nightmares. So it's been a quite an interesting tangent there where people with PTSD seem to report that cannabis is really great for their sleep because they're not, they're not experiencing those nightmares and it helps them sleep. Um, but obviously, you know, there's, there's, a lot of care that has to go with that because the downside is, is that someone abruptly stops using cannabis. Yeah. It can then result in poor sleep quality and then rebound nightmares. So THC, um, there's still a lot unknown there. And, um, you know, that's why there are studies now on the, the review that we did, we couldn't find any clinical studies that we could then actually definitively say, okay, this is what either cannabinoid is doing. And, same for CBD. There's only been one study that uh, that used CBD and looked at sleep and did the overnight sleep recording and monitoring, but this was in healthy volunteers. So it's unclear how CBD would shift the sleep architecture in someone who has an abnormal sleep problem. I find that fascinating because it's just such a widely accepted, you know, trope or myth or whatever that cannabis broadly is going to have some effect on sleep. And you're just saying, you know, there's literally one study, <laughs> one reliable study looking at the effects <laughs> of CBD, such a, a dearth of evidence, you know, as you said in your in your review. Can I ask a, a, li a little bit about your, um, your PhD and talking about insomnia? Probably there's going to be people going to be people listening to this who do have insomnia, mm. and I'm not asking you to give clinical advice at all or anything like that. I know that's not your role, but um, just just broadly, because somebody might be thinking, uh, oh, you know, should I 
go to uh, whatever the dealer, get a joint or, or whatever. You know, mm. Is THC going to be better? Is CBD going to be better? Because now there are increasingly becoming options for this. It's not just the black market in some places. Sometimes, you know, there might be a, a CBD product out there that people can take safely and not have this high. Or a THC product might be more suitable where are you at the moment in um you know exploring this just through the lens of chronic insomnia mm, so it's um we're right in the thick of it really because uh we're sort of halfway through our clinical trial and um because it is double blinded we can't actually access the results so we we won't know until the very end when we sort of kind of lift the curtain and see who got what um but um and you know and I guess the exciting thing is, is we've got there are several other studies globally, um, some in Australia, some overseas that are also using uh, cannabis-based therapies of different formulations um, in patients with chronic insomnia. So we're going to have some answers soon, hopefully in the next few years. In terms of any recommendations, it's you know for people with insomnia who are suffering now. I guess this is where the problem lies across the world where, you know, people are desperate. They don't want to turn to pharmaceutical medications that have a whole host of unwanted side effects that can be quite significant in some cases. And so they want an alternative. But as I mentioned before, what they're getting if they're buying a CBD oil or it's it's hard to know what you're getting um, unless yeah. it's been tested, it's been approved um, through some sort of formal access program. Um, whether it's state-based or federal-based, it's it's real, and there's some been some checks and measures put in place. It's really hard to know what what someone might be getting. So unless they're willing to do trial and error, it's it's a completely open field with that at this moment. Yeah. Well, I guess what you said earlier about how doctors are approaching it, you know, start low. You know, I guess that could be <laughs> a very, very broad bit of common sense advice. And even and even just um, talking to their physician about them wanting to try it. You know, if someone was interested in seeking illicit medicinal cannabis products to at least get their health professional on board and talking to them that they're going to try it. And hopefully they would be quite open-minded and at least able to assist them in carefully integrating it into their um, treatment regimen, even if it is illicit. But again, I get that that would vary widely across the world in terms of doctors being open to that. But some some level of monitoring, I think, is important. Yeah, absolutely. And especially you were talking about, you know, drug to drug interactions as well. I mean, that, that could potentially cause lots of problems. Um, what about... Um other sleep disorders you mentioned sleep apnea um, nightmares uh, ptsd you mentioned um i think when we talked earlier you you mentioned uh, restless leg syndrome mm. um, narcolepsy i mean it's not just insomnia is it i mean there are loads and loads of potential for research into tons of sleep disorders i wonder if you can give us a high level sort of overview of, of um uh, some some findings we might be discovering you know down the road in a few years yeah. Yeah, it's 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 certainly very widespread. It's not just insomnia, it's it's across the board and um you know as as you mentioned with the restless leg syndrome, you know that's quite exciting because in for a lot of these patients um they're not responding to conventional medication um and they're often on dopamine agonists which come with their own whole set of problems um and so the, this one study, it's a case series of six patients with um, RLS who used cannabis in different forms. So I think five of them smoked cannabis. One had a sublingual CBD formulation that they were using, and they all reported these stark improvements in their symptoms. Um, and so, you know, this is an exciting piece of work that was published, even though it was not controlled and it's, it's you know, by the study design, it's not of high quality, but it's, it's exciting because, you know, we haven't had any new medications in this space for quite some time. So this sort of highlights an exciting opportunity for other researchers to come in 
and do those high-quality studies. Other disorders such as uh, REM sleep behaviour disorder, this is something that happens um, in Parkinson's disease during REM sleep. So obviously we dream but our body is paralysed, we don't act out the dream. But in patients with this condition, they don't experience a loss of muscle tone and they often act out their dreams and they're at high risk of hurting themselves or their bed partner. Um, I've heard a story once of a man who uh, broke their wrist diving out of bed while dreaming and they thought that oh, they were going to get hit by a train. So, you know, it's, it's quite a significant um, issue and um, it has been flagged as an early indicator of neurodegenerative disease in people over the age of 50 and that's not to say that anyone who dreams or acts as that dream is um, uh, at risk of this. It's just a particular mm. thing in those uh, individuals who are already also experiencing cognitive decline. And they found mm. that um, in a study where they were actually administering CBD to look at the effects on uh, in Parkinson's disease on tremor, they found, again, this sort of other side effect of CBD on uh, several individuals who also had REM sleep behavior disorder. So again, it's sort of this offshoot from other studies where they picked up that, wow, it's also actually helping this aspect. So there hopefully will be future studies that will target um, this particular disorder to see exactly how CBD is affecting uh, these RBD symptoms. And then also, interestingly, narcolepsy and uh, other similar sleep-wake disorders such as idiopathic hypersomnolence. So this is um, where people experience excessive sleepiness during the day amongst other symptoms. And this hasn't actually been studied at all in humans, but uh, there is a bit of research uh, in animal models. In our review, we looked not only at human studies, but also in animal models of sleep disorders. And there has been this body of work that's been done showing that low dose CBD can actually be can actually be wake promoting, and wow. this is the first study that used a narcolepsy animal model to show that uh, administration of CBD actually did promote wakefulness. And um, this was quite an exciting finding, which we could hopefully then translate into humans to see if that effect would work. I'm actually aware of one sleep specialist in Australia who has tried uh, low-dose CBD in a patient who has quite problematic idiopathic hypersomnolence that wasn't responding to other medications, and I was told that they did see a clinical effect. So that's really exciting. And so the push is that, you know, is to publish this information and to get it out to the broader readership to inform policy, to inform educational materials for other doctors, to inform future research so that we can actually better understand what's going on, how is it working. Um, and the reason I, I push for this, I think, because it's already happening. People are already getting access to cannabis, sourcing it illegally themselves, but also through the legal patient access schemes. We recently did a request to our federal medical body to get a, information about the patient access numbers. So how many people are accessing cannabis in Australia legally? What are they getting it for? And we found that quite a large number are already being it prescribed cannabis for sleep disorders. Um, we couldn't get the breakdown because they didn't collect the information of specifically which sleep disorders, but um, it looks like it's already happening. And so the research is basically far, far behind. It's already in mainstream medicine. Um, yeah. So what we were hoping with this review is to really showcase what we know and what we don't know, so this evidence gap that you mentioned earlier. Wow. Really interesting about narcolepsy. Totally counterintuitive that cannabis could actually be wake and promoting. <laughs> that, that's really surprising. Listen, I, I've, I've taken up more of your time than I intended. Um, I, I just want to sort of round up with, you know, maybe looking at the bigger picture a, a little bit more. We started this conversation by saying, you know, cannabis has been around forever. So it's part of our human culture, you know, it's part of us and it's been used in 
religious <laughs> practice. It's been used as a fiber to make clothes. Um, it's always been part of us, but now we're in a situation where there's huge potential for medical use, but then it may become co-opted by the pharmaceutical industry. And a lot of people have views. Wh what should we think of cannabis? Is it a recreational thing? Is it a medical thing? Or can we hold these two thoughts in our head? Mm. I think the future will see a delineation between the recreational use of cannabis and the pharmaceutical versions of medicinal cannabis. So the cannabis-based products that have been tested, that are regulated, that have been um, that are evidence-based, and I think there surely would be a way for them to coexist. And, you know, it really would depend on the country that, you know, where you're from. And in some countries, cannabis is legal for all reasons, while in other countries it's illegal but decriminalised. Um, so possession is a non-criminal offence similar to a minor traffic violation. But then in other countries, possession leads to arrest and imprisonment. So we've got this broad range of the status of cannabis. And, you know, I'm sure... Over time, uh, these will change and um, as the evidence for cannabis as a therapeutic agent evolves, um, this will then inform clinical medicine. And so we'll find that in some countries where cannabis use for recreational reasons is allowed, then that will occur and it'll probably occur in countries where it's illegal anyway um, but there will be this new market of medicinal cannabis products that have specific formulations different methods of administration um, you know from oral sprays to topical applications to tablets and capsules that are specific for certain symptoms or for certain conditions um, that we know through evidence and through scientific studies will hopefully know that's what they're indicated for. So I hope that this is you know the, the way that we're moving forward to that and also educating our um, clinicians and our patients on how to use cannabis appropriately in the medicinal context and making sure that patients are managed effectively and safely. Fantastic. Uh, so much, so much potential and really looking forward to the outcome of your study when the uh, the curtain is revealed, <laughs> as you say. <laughs> Where can people go to find out more about uh, about your work and the Lambert Initiative? Is, is there any is there any resources, any guidelines for people who, who want to sort of find out more about the, the science and the research that's going on? Certainly. Um, so they could head to the Lambert Initiative uh, for Cannabinoid Therapeutics website. So it's sydney.edu.au forward slash Lambert forward slash. Um, and here it just talks about our research portfolio and what we're doing. And it does have some information about, about medicinal cannabis, but also accessing medicinal cannabis, predominantly obviously in, within Australia. In terms of the study that we're conducting, that's at the Wilcock Institute of Medical Research uh, in here in Sydney in Australia. Um, we do have a website dedicated to the clinical trial that we're doing, uh, and that's www.cansleepstudy.com. Uh, so people who are interested, if they're listening and they're based in Australia, feel free to head to that website and see if you would be interested in participating. Thanks again so much for your time, Anastasia, and uh, take care. Definitely. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Sleep Junkies podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Sleep well and we'll see you on the next one. 